Section 2 of Whispering Tunnels This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker Part 2 I must have fainted, for I awoke lying on the flags in the center of the room, with Major Fillet's chafing my wrists and neck. He had found the door wide open when he arrived there to summon me to breakfast. The Major was much concerned over my haggard appearance and insisted that I see the garrison physician without delay. I objected, saying I had suffered merely a slight indisposition which would soon pass. Major Fillet started violently when I told him that Jules Chamon had visited my chamber. He made no comment, but wheeled and hurriedly left the room. His attitude was puzzling. One look about the guest chamber convinced me that my experience had been no dream. The stone block rested where it had fallen on the floor, and the hollow space it had left in the wall, I found, was really a secret vault. It appeared to be empty, but in running my hand over the bottom, I found a photograph of a young woman. I did not examine it closely, but put it into the pocket of my overcoat. I dressed, but was too shaken to eat the excellent breakfast served in the club room. I visited Colonel Dupin, anxious to find out the history of the great chamber, and had launched into the story of the night before when I mentioned the name of Chaumont. Papa Dupin instantly froze in his attitude, but I knew that my story had made a profound impression. He would not permit me to complete it. My boy, he replied, raising his prominent eyes, do not speak in riddles, and do not ask irrelevant questions. I am very busy this morning, and must really ask you to excuse me. Thus rebuked, I determined to leave Fort Vaux then and there. And I did leave, angry and crestfallen. I was engaged in packing up my belongings at the inn in Montcourt when a rapping sounded on my door. I opened it to face Major Fillet's. My greeting must have been frigid, for he began an apology at once, pacing the floor nervously. Twice he ran to the door, flinging it open suddenly as if in fear of eavesdroppers. In you, he asked, that Lieutenant Moray, the pleasant young Breton whom you talked with at dinner last evening, is dead. No? His body was found in bed this morning, and that look of horror on his face, I shall never forget it. Naturally, finding you on the floor this morning unnerved me. The whisper. Then followed a tale of strange happenings in Vaux. The major, his voice sometimes sinking so low that it was almost inaudible, told me of the pledge taken by every member of the garrison not to reveal these tales outside of the fort. Spectres so frightful had appeared that neither officers nor men would venture into certain parts of the fort alone. The tunnels were shunned, as if the demons of the universe were centered there. Fillets recalled numbers of the men who were found dead in the plague spots of the fort, apparently of unseen horrors. Two lieutenants, he said, had recently gone mad on different occasions in the guest chamber where I had spent the night, under circumstances that were almost identical, and the eyes of both shone the light of insane terror over something they had seen and were attempting to escape, when found crouching and muttering. The guest chamber had been occupied by Chaumont and Debray during the war. Flays said he obtained this information from a chart in the records. None of the officers now in the garrison had served with either of the two men, nor, with the exception of the colonel and himself, had known them. He had merely heard of Chaumont's mysterious disappearance, 
the German attack, and of Debray's transfer to Paris headquarters after the armistice. Of what actually happened in Vaux during the war, he knew nothing, so far as regarded Chaumont, except that an order from headquarters forbidding mention of his name was in effect throughout the army. Falaise admitted the order was a strange one and could not recall an instance where a similar taboo had been issued. Yes, he had seen the specter of, he whispered it, Jules Chaumont. The major regarded that as strange, because there was never any record of his death. Others who had spent the night in the guest chamber had seen the apparition, but other things encountered there at the same time had frightened them too badly to observe it in particular. Falaise told of seeing it once in the tunnels, and another time in the destroyed wing of the fortress. It was not my intention, the major said in bidding me goodbye at the station, to have you spend the night in the guest chamber, but officials arriving unexpectedly from Paris left me no choice. There was no other room, and I profoundly regret that you suffered such an experience. I shall see you in Paris soon, I hope. He shook my hand through a car window and stood gazing at the train as it pulled out. Now, doctor, Cresson concluded, you know the whole story. I arrived in Paris today and walked the boulevards for hours before I could make up my mind to come here. The matter is a complete mystery to my way of thinking, but of course you might not face any difficulty in unraveling it. Was it Chaumont in the flesh, or was it a phantom which I saw in the fortress? Little John reflected for several minutes before making a reply. There is no doubt in my mind, he said, that you saw the specter of Jules Chaumont, but in doing so you ran afoul of other phenomena, far more dangerous than apparitions. You spent the night in one of the worst haunted spots in Europe, and it is fortunate that you emerged as safely as you did. The black mass you describe may have been either an elemental or an intelligence that never existed in human flesh. In plain words, a demon. Now, I think I am not far wrong when I say that the specter of Chaumont would have shown you the key to this mystery had it not been interfered with by a host of powerful entities which must have literally filled your bedchamber. These elemental forces must be exercised, or the fate of Jules Chaumont will never be known. But such a step must be undertaken by a trained psychic, because anyone else would be overpowered. It is no wonder you fainted. Will you undertake this, doctor? Cresson asked, leaning eagerly forward from his chair. I feel it is my duty to go on with my search for Jules. Yes, replied the scientist. I will do so. First, I must think the matter out and map out a course of action. I cannot say just when I shall be ready. I'll wait here in Paris until convenient, said Cresson, thinking little John. Ugh, it seems I can hear the whisper of the tunnels in my dreams. By the way, exclaimed little John suddenly, let me ask what you did with the photograph you found in that guest chamber. The younger man emitted a low whistle of surprise. By George he replied in a startled tone. I had forgotten about that. He stepped quickly to his wardrobe and lifted a tweed overcoat from the rack. Here it is, he exclaimed, drawing forth a mud-stained photograph. Let me see it, the scientist requested quietly. Cresson passed over the portrait in silence, waiting for little John to speak. The doctor examined the likeness minutely. This is one of the most beautiful women I have ever seen anywhere he mused admiringly. 
I wonder what she has to do with the haunted fortress. Hello, here's an inscription. Both men, bending over the photograph, saw written in a lower corner. To my dearest Jules, from Audrey, Paris, March 16th, 1917. Three weeks before the fort was taken, exclaimed Cresson. I wonder who the original could be, or what she could have meant to Jules Charmont. He glanced at the doctor expectantly. These are among the things we must find out, little John answered. But I think as you do, there is a connection somewhere. Did you visit the Bureau of Secret Documents, where you made inquiry at the Invalide? The scientist peered over his glasses as he asked the question. No, doctor, the young man returned. I visited only Army headquarters. I didn't know of the Bureau then. I'll go there tomorrow. End of Part 2